Well, we've been working through, in fact, we've come to number seven of our seven deadly sins. We've been looking at uh, the variety of what has been, particularly in medieval times, written down as uh, issues of sin. And um, although I wouldn't uh, personally hold to this rigid idea that these are somehow uniquely uh, definitive in terms of sins, I think the idea of seven deadly sins has been used so much in so many different ways, in in advertising, in in literature, in the media, in films. It's a great handle, actually. Uh, And those medieval uh, theologians, they they had their heads screwed on. They were able to see things that it is not unreasonable for us to go back uh, and to think through again. I think we live in a generation, don't we, where we tend to think that we're the ones who've made it. We tend to think that we're the ones who are superior to every uh, previous generation. We tend to think that anything that has gone on in, in ancient times somehow is inferior to us. But, you know, I think that for all of our developments in in the sciences and and all of those kind of things, I think we live in a generation, don't you, where there are an increasing number of people who are less secure in what has historically been points of real security. You know, we really were so secure in the sciences, in the absolutes, in the things that we could see and touch and taste and smell, you know, the senses. We put all of our faith into that. And yet increasingly what we are tending to see is that we are losing confidence in it. We are losing confidence. We are beginning to say there must be something more. Isn't there another uh, dimension? We are living in a generation with an upsurge in the interests in spirituality, in in understanding and recognizing that what we see is not everything. Uh, Well, the ancients had that. (laughs) The medieval world understood that. Uh, And so maybe, perhaps, rather than being so arrogant to think that we've got it all, maybe we're at a point of being able to say, let's just step back, let's think, let's consider Well, one of the things that the ancients did was they catalogued various perspectives of sin. It's as though they were were considering the issue of sin a bit like a diamond that's been cut and there are different facets. It's one thing, but you can look at it from different perspectives. It shows different perspectives of a deeper issue. Jesus said that the problem with us as human beings is our hearts. Uh, And then he said that there are a whole load of ways that that is displayed. Uh, in a sense, what, what's going on in there spills out into life. It's what's wrong inside that, that kind of blows out in the things that we say, the attitudes that we have, the things that we do, the, uh, the, the, the way that we engage or disengage with each other. Uh, and so the ancients, the medieval theologians, particularly Thomas Aquinas, came up with the seven deadly sins. And one of them, the final one that we're going to look at uh, this week, just to give you the heads up on where we're heading, we're doing this one, one this week, we're doing a big question next week, and then we're going to do a, a two weeks' time, we're going to do a final wrapping up of the whole of the series. Uh, so that's, that's where we're headed. The one that we're looking at, Uh, this afternoon is wrath or anger we'll call it wrath we'll try to stick 
uh, with the word wrath. Wrath, it's kind of, it's kind of the litmus test uh, of our hearts, really. It, it tells us, it tells us where we are. Somebody said this, uh, follow the trail of what makes you angry and you will find what you love the most. I thought, wow, just, that sounds a bit strange. So let's work that out. What makes you angry? What disrupts you the most? What frustrates you the most? Maybe it's something as simple as that fifth set of red lights on the way into work. Does that make you angry? You're the kind of person that just gets wound up by that? Um, well, actually, what you are really saying and what I am really saying is, actually, you know, the thing that should not happen is my order, my, my time scale, my plans should not be disrupted. I am a priority. My time is how it should be. And quite honestly, what's going on is that's interrupting my time, my plans. And I get angry because the one thing that I hate is when my plans are disrupted because they are mine. Uh, and I, and they are, I own them. And if anything interrupts that, what we really follow the trail, what are we really saying is my schedule. It is the priority. You sat in a traffic jam. My schedule is the priority. I am frustrated by this. I am angry at this. And we don't take the time to think that actually the reason for this is because somebody else is being held up because of an accident two miles down the road. And my temporary little glitch in life is nothing compared to the massive life-changing disruption for somebody else two miles further down the road. What am I saying? My priority is number one. Everybody else is second. <laughs> Follow the trail of where our anger is and it will take us to where our heart's desire really is. We've got to be ruthless with ourselves when we look at that. So we're going to consider this issue of wrath this afternoon. We're going to see it in three ways. We're going to see uh, an ungodly wrath. We're going to see a godly wrath. And we're going to see grace in the midst of wrath. That's where we're heading. An ungodly wrath, a godly wrath, and grace in the midst of wrath. We're going to uh, consider it under the, under the banner of this story of Ahab. To give you a little bit of background as we come to 1 Kings chapter 21, we see this story that we had read to us, and it's a fairly straightforward story. Ahab is uh, the king, his wife is Jezebel, and Ahab spots a piece of land, a vineyard, which belongs to Naboth. And uh, it's right near to his palace. Uh, it's interesting, isn't it? We kind of think uh, vineyards and palaces, and he wants it for a, to, for a vegetable plot. Um, there were less people in the world and, and the kingdoms were not what they were and so, so the idea of a king actually having a, having a plot of ground is, is, would not be surprising for the ancients. It would be something which would be quite, quite normal. And what we see here is that, that Ahab looks on at this vineyard and uh, he wants it and uh, he makes sure he gets it. Uh, and the, the intrigue and horror of how he gets it is the way the story unfolds. But we can't really understand this story until we think about Ahab. Until we think about who he is. Because every story in the Bible, every uh, perspective that the Bible opens up to us, 
is it sits within a stream. We've been covering this on a Monday evening. One of the things that's really important to understand when we come to the Bible is the Bible is the story uh, of God's dealing with this world. It's, it's how God moves us from a point of crisis where we have no relationship with him in Genesis chapter 3 to a point in Genesis chapter 21-22 where, where relationship is re-established with him. That, that is the journey that God is taking humanity on. And so we've got to ask ourselves, how does God take us on that journey? How does he move us from no relationship to a re-established relationship? And therefore, every one of the stories that are contained within the Bible in some way fit into the stream of that. Uh, it's not just, you know, it just so happens that there was a king called Ahab. Actually, Ahab was the king of God's people. Because one of the storylines that we see flowing through the Bible is that God saves a people. Not, not, that, not that he's kind of selective and, and, and only and kind of, you know, kind of draws a barrier around and disregards. Rather, for anybody to come to faith in God, it means and it demands that he gets involved with a people. And that people become uh, the, the display, if you like, of God into this world. And Ahab was called to be the king of God's people. Now when God called a people to him, what he said was this, your responsibility is to, if you like, to display me to the world. You are to be a blessing to the world. Let me confess before you this afternoon. I look back in history and I see many, many occasions, not just history, even events now, where it does not look as if the church, God's people, are a blessing to the world around. They're not. In fact, quite the opposite. It can be disruptive, they can be bigoted, they can be hateful. That is the way it is. Uh, and that is not right. In fact, what we see here is precisely that. We see the king of God's people living in a way which is not displaying how he should be as the king of God's people. We see, uh, as the story unfolds, he goes and he sees this uh, this man called Naboth uh, with this uh, vineyard and he says to him let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden since it, since it is close to my palace in exchange I will give you a better vineyard or if you prefer I will pay you whatever it is worth so he is not saying just give it to me he's not at this point in exerting an absolute authority he's trying to get it by some sense of justice. But it's a selfish justice. And we see that it's a selfish justice because Naboth's response is clued in. He says this, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. One of the things that we see in terms of this pattern of how God deals with his people is that he says, I will be your king. Uh, and he says to believers in Jesus today, I will be your king. Uh, and any king ha has a kingdom. Any kingdom has 
uh, a nation, a, a place. It has a set of rules. The New Testament says that those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, we're part of a new kingdom. The kingdom is not seen here. It's no longer geographical. But temporarily in the Old Testament, it was geographical. And it was laid out by God. And when God gave to his people uh, a land, he said, now this is your land for you and your ancestors. It's a temporary thing. It's a picture for you and for this world and for the people to come who will read about this. It's a picture of how I'm, I'm going to give you a land. Now, now it's for you and for all of your ancestors. And Naboth got it. He said, no, this, is, this isn't from you. This isn't something that I can just sell. I can't just fritter this away. I can't make now. Uh, and, and my immediately family now can't live a great life from the proceeds of the sale of this vineyard at the expense of the generations to come. No, the blessing of God is a, is a blessing for now and a blessing for all of my, uh, my generations to come. Those who will follow on. And therefore Naboth got it right. And he said, look, I don't see this vineyard as just something for now. This is God's blessing. And therefore I can't just, I can't just treat it lightly. How does Ahab respond? The one who should... As king of God's people, he should have been upholding that very ideal. He should have been saying, uh, Naboth, whatever you do, don't sell that vineyard because don't forget, it is a provision from God. It's something that God has given you. It's a temporary thing. It's just for a while so that we can see how God works. But don't forget, this is a provision from God. I shouldn't even ask you for it. But he comes in and he asks for it. How does he respond? So he went home sullen and angry. Because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my ancestors. Look at the way he responds. So he lay on his bed sulking and refused to eat. What do you say? Grow up, man. <laughs> Just grow up. Just pull yourself together. That's what we would tend to say, but, but, it's just not that easy, is it? Because you see, I, I am not saying, I am not saying that all physical illnesses are caused by problems deep down inside. Not at all, not at all. But you know, as well as I do, that we can get ourselves into a stew and we can go down a downward spiral and we can get so messed up that we can end up exactly exactly where Ahab is. We can be there. We can see events in life which have unfolded in such a way which we are so bent out of shape about that it takes us uh, off guard and it knocks us and it destroys us and it crushes us and we get angry and we stop eating and we take to our beds and we become a grumpy monge who's just incommunicative uh, and nobody wants to go near us because they feel as though we're surrounded by six foot of broken glass. And if we go anywhere near him or her, it is just going to be a nightmare. So although we see this and we say, pull yourself together, there is another sense in which we would say, hmm, hmm, you know what? 
in a different set of circumstances, that could be me. I think there's a, uh, there's a song that, uh, that Sting wrote, and that's one of the lines. In a different set of circumstances, that could be me. All it takes for any one of us is a combination of events, a combination of experiences, and every one of us can be there. I had a fascinating conversation with somebody just this past week. A realisation that when we look out on the events that are going on in the world around, for every one of us, we could just as easily be there ourselves. And the person who was chatting was shocked by that. So I used this picture. I've used it before, but I think it's really powerful. A few years ago, when the boys were doing history at school, one of them brought back one of their history books. And inside the history book um, was a picture from World War II. It was, uh, it was of the Holocaust and um, women and children being taken off a train and uh, carried, uh, marched along a pathway. Alongside the pathway was a huge ditch and literally there was a, a German soldier sat on the edge of the ditch smoking a cigarette and his job was to shoot the people who were laid down in the ditch. Horrific. Horrific, isn't it? We look at that and we look back at that time in our history and we say that is just horrific. And then I would say, did that German soldier get up that morning? Six months, 12 months earlier, three years earlier and say what I want to do is shoot women and children? No, no. He's an ordinary man, probably with an ordinary family back home. But a set of circumstances, a set of events, puts him in a situation which is extraordinary compared to where he was a few years earlier. And I would say all of us need to face up and say, we could be there. We love to say we couldn't. We would love to be able to say that would not be me. But I honestly... I honestly don't feel confident to be able to say it. Because history tells me that we can't say it. History tells me that our anger can well up in ways that surprises us when the circumstances emerge. And so we have this man who ends up just moping on his bed like a five-year-old child. And what happens? His wife comes in, Jezebel. What's up with you? You're the king, aren't you? Listen, I'll sort it out. And, and what does Ahab do at that point? Does he say, no, hang on a sec, what you're doing is wrong. You to just give me the seals, stop writing those letters. That is not going to happen. No, he just backs off and he says, right, okay, you get on with it. And she writes some letters and she seals it with Ahab's seal. That's really important, isn't it? She just seals it with his seal. In other words, he says, I'm willing to be in there with you. And a letter goes out to the, uh, to the officials, call a feast, and send uh, Naboth to a table, and on the other side, put some scoundrels, as the Bible describes it. And then at the end of the feast, uh, make sure that those scoundrels testify to the fact that 
Naboth has, as she put it, uh, has undermined the king and God. Put two scoundrels opposite him, it says in verse 10, and get them to bring charges that he has cursed both God and the king, then take him out and stone him to death. Look what happens when our anger goes unchecked. Look what happens when our anger goes unchecked. Somebody who's bothered about a vineyard becomes a murderer. And you say, well, well, red lights are not going to cause me to be a murderer. Well, I accept that for the most part. Apart from the fact that Jesus said this, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Why? Because it's the root of the same branch. It, it's a continuation. It's, it's what it grows out of. Anger takes you down this road. It takes you there. And it is only God's grace that checks us and stops us from going where we would be. And it is, it is actually God allowing in this moment, in this situation, he allows the unfolding of the anger to display where it can take us. And Naboth is falsely accused, he's taken outside, and he is stoned. And then, then Jezebel says, come on, get up. Go and get the vineyard. He's dead. So he goes and gets the vineyard. Ungodly anger. And the reality is, it's a really tough, really tough kind of section this. Because we look at it and the way it unfolds, it's really comfortable for us to say, that is not where I would be. But the reality is that this is God allowing it to unfold in a way which shows where our hearts can take us now and here's the crunch is it always wrong to be angry is it always wrong to be angry therefore there are many faiths that would say that success in spiritual terms is that we kind of reach a point of kind of calm and peace <laughs> where nothing nothing riles us nothing gets us you know where we're able to deal with all of the issues in life and nothing causes us to rise. Nothing, nothing grabs us and hurts us and challenges us. Is it right to never be angry? The same person who said follow your anger and it will take you to what you love the most also said this. If you have never been angry, you have never loved <laughs> Now, you might have loved the wrong thing, but what do we see unfolding next? We see that from God's perspective, there are times when it is right to be angry. Because right at this point, God's anger is unleashed. God's anger is unleashed. What happens is that Ahab goes down to the vineyard 
Uh, and God sends his, his spokesman, Elijah, there. And he goes, says, right, now you go down. Uh, and in verse 17 it says, Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, Go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He is now in Naboth's vineyard. God knows exactly where he is. And he says, Go down there. Uh, where he's gone to take possession of it, and say to him, this is what the Lord says, you have, not, have you not murdered a man and seized his property? This is what the Lord says, in the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, yours. That is anger. And you know what? It is a righteous anger. Because what is it? If we, if we take that same idea of follow through the anger, and where does it take us to? Where does it lead us to? Where does it take us to where God is angry? Where does it lead us to? It says this, that one of the things that God hates is injustice. He loves justice. He hates the idea of this uh, of this king and queen who have uh, archi- been the architects of the murder of, of a normal man so that a, a vegetable plot can be put together for the sake of the king. God hates that. And you know what? I think we need a God who hates that kind of thing. We need a God who is angry at injustice. We need a God who is angry enough Not just to be angry, but to do something about it. To do something about it. And what we see here is God saying, now listen, where where Naboth was taken out, where Naboth's blood was shed, your blood is going to be shed. He doesn't mince his words here, does he? Where the dogs licked up Naboth's blood, the same dogs are going to lick up your blood. That's the way it's going to be. We have a picture And some of you, I am sure, are thinking, I I don't like the idea of God being like that. I don't like the idea of a God whose wrath can, can open out like that. I don't like the idea of a God who is, who is so determined for his justice to be done that he will speak with words like blood being licked up by dogs. Because what we've done is we've, got, we've created in our minds the idea of this loving God who is, who is, who is gentle and caring and never, never opposes us and never challenges us and never deals with justice. And we can, friends, we cannot live with that kind of a God. It is no good for us. We need a God who is going to deal with with wrong and injustice. We need a God who is able to step in and say, that is wrong and it is not going to happen and it is going to be dealt with. It is going to be dealt with in a decisive, powerful way. We want a God who's loving. We do. But if God doesn't love justice, he is not a loving God. He's not a loving God. He has got to love justice to be a truly loving God. Because justice and righteousness and goodness are the foundations of what we know to be right and to be love. 
And so if God isn't prepared to do something about those things, he is not a loving God. It's exactly what we say. If he's never angry, he's never loved. (laughs) But thank God, he does love. We've created a God who is domesticated. We've created a God who is just safe. And you know what? God is not safe. He's not safe. He's good. He is perfectly good. Perfectly good. He is kind. He is compassionate. But he is strong. And he is the protector of the oppressed. And he is the one who brings righteousness. And he is the one who brings justice. He is all of those things. That is the God that we have. And, and the more that we think about it, the more that we look on at a world which is out of control, the more we realize that is exactly the kind of God we need. We need that kind of God. And I would say that I confessed the injustice of the church down the centuries. Let me confess another injustice of the church. Stripping God of his power. Stripping God of the fact that God is a God who is righteous and just and a judge. And portraying a God who is only soft and cuddly and gentle. And limiting him down to our level. We cannot live with that. We need a God who shows righteous wrath in the face of ungodly wrath. You know when Ahab we said is that's ungodly wrath. We need a God who shows righteous wrath. That's bigger, that's stronger, that's better, that's greater, that's more powerful. That can always override that ungodly wrath. That is what we need. So we ask the question, if God is that God who can, who can display in a moment his power, does that mean he's a God who we don't know where we're working? Is he the kind of God who we, we might come close to him? You know some of those people, they might be good, but whew, you're not sure where you are. Do you ever have one of those teachers in school? Well, you're just not sure where you're working. They're the kind of people, you know that they're good, but what's it going to be like today? (laughs) Is God like that? Is he the kind of God who we're not sure where we're working any moment because he just might explode out? What do we see here is the final, because we've seen a God, ungodly wrath, we've seen godly wrath, and now we see what? We see grace in the midst of wrath. Look at what happens, the way it opens up. Elijah speaks these words and he says, I will wipe out your descendants and cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make your house like that of Jeroboam, uh, just wiped out, gone, finished. And also concerning Jezebel, the Lord said, dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. How does Ahab respond? Verse 27. When Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and fasted. 
He lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. And then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his days, but I will bring it on his house in the days of his son. Grace. Undeserved. What does Ahab deserve? He deserves, deserves to be destroyed. And yet for a moment God reveals another character. Another aspect to his character. Absolutely determined, just. And yet at the same time a God who, who hears those who come to him with pleas. And in that humbling and in that desperation... We have a God whose ears are not plugged, but are open. And he displays grace. I want to ask the question though, how does God communicate? Is that just for Ahab at that moment? Or is there something that we can learn here? Because at the moment we're saying, okay, there's ungodly wrath. And hopefully what we've accepted is that we have the potential to display ungodly wrath. We have the potential to display that. We know that God is a God of godly wrath, but where does that put us today? There's an incredible little sentence at the end of this where it says this. I will not bring disaster in his days. I will bring it on his house in the days of his so, what have we got here? You know, we were talking a bit earlier about this pattern that God is taking us through. What he's saying in the Old Testament is, at least he's saying this. No matter how much you look for a king in this world, you'll never get a king that is going to deliver the right kind of kingdom for you. Every king will fail you. But there is going to come another king, a greater king. Every king will fail you. When Ahab the king fails to deliver righteous justice, God the king, through Elijah, delivers righteous justice. Two kings. We could say this is the story of two kings. Except that this king says, I'm going to deliver justice on future sons. Now if we are prepared to think through the implications of that. And see the storyline of the Bible flowing through history. We will see this. That the greater king fulfills that. Not actually in the sons of Ahab. Which he does on a temporary basis. He fulfills that in a greater son. The king of heaven brings ultimate justice, pours out judgment on a greater son. Do you see what happens to Ahab in this little picture? Ahab the guilty doesn't bear the price. The son bears the price. And what does God say? That is a picture. Be prepared for this because there is coming a time when a greater king is going to send a greater son who will bear a greater price for the sake of even more sons and daughters who don't deserve it. 
Isn't that incredible? Why? What is he saying? What is God preparing us for? He's saying, I am setting a stepping stone in this story in the Old Testament to prepare you for years to come, which is my king, King Jesus, who becomes both the just king and the son on whom vengeance and judgment are placed. Righteous vengeance, righteous judgment poured out on him. He says, I will bring it on his house in the days of his son. And God says, I'll do it. And I'll do it for people who don't deserve it. Because this is part of a stream that prepares us for Jesus. Wrath. I'm no different to Ahab. I have all the potential to be there. Let's put it this way. How many stories do we hear of perfectly balanced, nice people who hit celebrity? And as soon as they hit celebrity, what do they become? They become tyrants. Because deep down inside there, it's in all of us. It's only circumstances which stop it. If God made me king without any parliament to, to, with, to kind of keep me balanced, I'll be there and so will you. Because that's what we're like. And he says, even though you deserve to be, punishment, be punished because your anger is what will pour out from you, given the chance, I will, I will pour out all of the justice on my son. And that, that, that causes a response. It causes a response of humility, just like Ahab's response of humility here. Ahab is, responds with humility in the hope that God might not carry out what he has said he will carry out. But for us it's different. We're not saying, I'm going to be humbled in the hope that God will not carry out what he said he will carry out. We're saying, I will be humbled because he has carried out what he said he will carry out. He has poured it out on his son. And that humbles me, not in fear, but in love, in awe, in reverence of a father in heaven who might love me enough that even though I deserve to be wiped out and destroyed, he will wipe out his son instead. Even though my wrath is everything, my sin is so great that it will destroy me, it will consume me. And yet he says, I'll consume my son instead so that you might be forgiven. And what is the outcome of that? I fall on my knees. I fall on my knees. In thanks to a God who might show me grace so amazing. 